places, listeners. Welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. This show uses short stories to examine our strangest beliefs and behaviors. Today, we're looking back to 1939. That year, the MGM musical The Wizard of Oz became an instant classic, introducing the song Over the Rainbow and catapulting Judy Garland to stardom. But since then, rumors have circulated that a curse lies over Oz, dooming every production to a terrible fate. Our own story today involves a middle school production of a beloved musical with a director who takes his cues from Stanley Kubrick. We'll see if his cast can reverse the curse. Take it from the top. Be warned, this story will contain depictions of death, gore, and child murder, and discussions of eating disorders and drug abuse. Listener discretion is advised. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, a director, a twister, a witch. Oh my. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. And so Dorothy and her friends learned that they'd had what they needed all, all along. The scarecrow learned that expiration is knowledge. Wait, no. Experience is... Mr. Thorpe threw his script on the ground, screaming. This was the most important sequence. The one where the lion got his courage, the tin man his heart, the scarecrow his brain, and the audience got the most important part of the story. Catharsis. Opening night was tomorrow, but the kid still couldn't remember his lines. You, munchkin boy, he said. My name's Jack, the boy responded. Mr. Thorpe continued. No, it's not. It's munchkin boy. Every second you are on my stage or off of it, you need to be eating, sleeping and breathing, munchkin boy. Now, put your arms up above your head. The boy slowly raised his arms. You are going to repeat your lines. Every time you mess up, start from the top. Keep your hands up until you are finished. But what if my arms get tired? The munchkin boy asked. Mr. Thorpe shrugged and said, Should have thought of that before you forgot your lines. The kids stalked off, sniffling, and Mr. Thorpe put his head in his hands. These kids were killing him. His tin man was absolutely wooden, entirely unemotional. His lion was overly sensitive. His scarecrow couldn't remember his cues, and his Dorothy? A spoiled child. Mr. Thorpe remembered when he was their age, back when he was the toast of Broadway. 
but then came puberty and a voice drop, and the stage lights went dark for him. After those cast album checks finally dried up, it was all he could do to get this job at a junior high in Kansas. He knew he'd be working with kids when he took it, but somehow he thought they'd be less… amateur. A shrill voice interrupted his thoughts. Upstage, Dorothy was shouting at the Tin Man. You need to give me something, you stupid blob of metal. You're supposed to be crying in this scene, like this. She slapped him right across the mouth. The Tin Man didn't even wince. Mr. Thorpe jumped up and ran over. Dorothy, don't hit your castmates. That's my job. The shouting set the lion off into a fresh round of tears again. Thorpe couldn't believe it. The kid had been crying all day. The tin man flatly explained that his friend had just broken up with his girlfriend. Mr. Thorpe threw up his hands. <coughs> useless. All of you are absolutely useless. Dorothy, you need to stop directing my show. Lion, you're 12. Stop crying over a silly breakup. Maybe transfer some of that emotion to the Tin Man, who's about as compelling as a soda can. He turned to the munchkin boy. His arms were still trembling over his head. Mr. Thorpe kneeled down, looking him eye to eye. You know, when I was your age, I pushed myself hard. And now, I'm going to push you too. We're not leaving until we get it right. I will have perfection. Almost as if on cue, a tornado siren whined from somewhere outside. A loud buzzing noise spread across the room and the kids checked their phones. Mr. Thorpe pulled out his own and saw the alert. The weather service had declared a tornado warning. Just what he needed. On stage, the munchkin boy had dropped his arms. The lion was putting on his jacket. A few kids trembled as they walked towards the basement. What do you all think you're doing? Didn't you hear me? Perfection! Mr. Thorpe called for his stage manager to lock the doors. These kids knew nothing about putting in the work. He'd done Shakespeare in the park during a hurricane, dang it! He was ready to die for his art, and they should be too. You might be afraid of a little storm, but let's use that fear. Cyclone scene, let's go! Take it from the top! But as they continued rehearsing, the wind howled outside. The sirens grew louder, more insistent. The students cowered in the audience, hiding under the red velvet chairs. The farmhouse set wobbled back and forth, looking dangerously close to collapsing. Mr. Thorpe groaned. If that thing squashed his actors, he'd have the set designer's head on a platter. Yet he relaxed as Dorothy ran across the stage, screaming for Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. She was so scared of the tornado that real tears streamed from her eyes. Her face was an ugly red, and her lines were staccato squeaks between her sobs. It was her best performance yet. The distress was so real. Finally, this is acting. Mr. Thorpe thought, raising his arms in the air in triumph. Suddenly, the roof cracked open and flew off. Mr. Thorpe saw the long tail of a tornado appear on stage. 
An object flew towards him, hit his skull, and everything went dark. Mr. Thorpe blinked in the light. It was bright, too bright, like somebody had turned the house lights on. As his eyes adjusted, he noticed a semicircle of tiny houses across from him. He realized he was sitting in the center of his Munchkinland set. He was thankful it had survived the storm. Or had it? He sat up, his vision slightly more clear, and realized the huts weren't exactly the gingerbread-esque houses he'd designed. Instead, they were made of rough-cut branches, and decorating the roofs were... Skulls? He shuddered. His vision was still a little blurry. Maybe he hit his head harder than he thought. He looked for the kids and found several of them clinging to the flimsy farmhouse. He counted five. Dorothy, Tin Man, Scarecrow, Lion, and the little munchkin boy. What did you guys do to my set? None of this is right! He yelled. The Tin Man spoke up. Mr. Thorpe, I don't think this is our set. The curtains and the lights are all gone. It looks like... like Oz. Mr. Thorpe rubbed his eyes and looked around. The boy was right. There was no backstage, no red velvet chairs. Instead, there was a sickly green sky and dark, crooked trees and far away, the smell of something damp and moldering. Somehow, they'd really ended up in the land of Oz. Dorothy said with a much too wide smile, Well, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas any... With a tremendous groan, the farmhouse set toppled forward, landing with a thunderous crash right on top of Dorothy. Mr. Thorpe rushed over to Dorothy's side. This couldn't be happening. They were supposed to open tomorrow night, and of course they didn't have an understudy. Mr. Thorpe rubbed his forehead. But then, he realized something. If they truly were in Oz, all they had to do was follow the story. Go ask the wizard for help. With any luck, they'd be back in Kansas and have their lead again before the overture started. When he told the kids this, they only stared at him. No, not at him. Past him. Because behind him, a small figure was perched up on a house dressed entirely in light blue. A munchkin. Mr. Thorpe reassured the cast that munchkins were friendly creatures. They might even help them get to the wizard. He introduced himself and asked for help. But the figure said nothing. Mr. Thorpe called again. Perhaps it couldn't hear him. Then the creature jumped down. Mr. Thorpe gasped. The creature wasn't wearing blue. It wasn't wearing anything at all. Its skin was a vivid cerulean. Its eyes were yellow and wicked. It looked at Mr. Thorpe for a long moment, then opened its mouth, revealing the sharp teeth of a carnivore. Then... It launched and dug its claws right into Mr. Thorpe's skin. He screamed, pulled it off, and threw it towards the village. Mr. Thorpe ran to where the kids were huddled on the edge of the forest. 
and the start of a dirty, mustard-colored road. <laughs> Mr. Thor, I don't like Oz, the lion blubbered. I want to go home. How do we get home? Mr. Thorpe looked back at the Munchkin village. The creature had already stood up again, and more of them appeared by the huts. There had to be a way to fix this. Who knew what horrors waited for them on the road to the Emerald City? A flash of silver caught his eye. The farmhouse set had completely crushed Dorothy, but her slipper-covered feet poked out of the side. That was it! Those shoes were the key to getting home. Three clicks of the heels and they'd be back in time for opening night. All right, Munchkin Boy, you've got a new character motivation. By any means necessary, you get those shoes. The Munchkin Boy glanced at Dorothy, then wailed. I don't want to touch a dead body. Mr. Thorpe rolled his eyes and said, Think of it like a character exercise. You'll never be a great actor unless you push yourself. He shoved the munchkin boy towards the former set. The boy crawled across the smashed hut, picking carefully around splintered bones. He knelt by Dorothy's feet, his lip curled in disgust. The first slipper came off easily enough, but the second wouldn't budge. He tugged on it once, twice, with no luck. When he pulled the third time, the shoe came off with a loud pop. The boy fell backwards, the slippers held aloft like a prize. He scurried back towards Mr. Thorpe. Mr. Thorpe beamed. He knew these actors were capable of some pretty amazing stuff. They just needed the right direction. Mr. Thorpe slipped the shoes onto his feet. They fit surprisingly well, seeing as their previous owner was a 12-year-old girl. He joined hands with his students. Everyone, think of the school theater. I'm going to click my heels three times and then we'll step right on that stage. I guarantee it. The children squeezed their eyes shut and grasped his hands. Mr. Thorpe clicked his heels together three times. But when Mr. Thorpe opened his eyes, they were all standing in the exact same spot. The lion burst into a fresh round of tears. This is wrong, Mr. Thorpe said, clicking his heels fruitlessly. Nothing's working like it's supposed to! He threw the shoes back toward Munchkinland. The kids stared at him. What are we going to do now? The lion said, tears brimming in his eyes. The scarecrow piped up. Follow the yellow brick road, I guess. If we can't get back with the shoes, we need to see the wizard. Mr. Thorpe looked at their expectant faces. The scarecrow seemed resolute. The tin man shell-shocked. And of course, the lion was sobbing. He needed to get them home soon. All right, he said. Let's stick close together and follow the yellow brick road. As the group traveled down the path, a new wind blew down from the west. It smelled of ash and animal musk. Far in the distance, a cloud of dark figures massed on the horizon. Something wicked 
awaited them up ahead. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Mr. Thorpe's students were all complaining about the walk when they came to a small meadow. An old-fashioned well sat in the centre and Mr. Thorpe allowed them to rest by it. The group had just sat down when the trees shook and a dark shape appeared on the western horizon. Dozens of giant winged creatures landed in the tree's branches. Mr. Thorpe didn't realize what they were until two landed in the clearing. Each stood three feet tall, leaning forward on their front paws. They had long, brilliantly red noses that stood out against their black fur. Their wings were huge and leathery like those of a massive bat. And when they screeched, They flashed long, yellow fangs. Flying monkeys. As soon as Mr. Thorpe heard cackling laughter, he knew who was coming. Oz's very own Wicked Witch of the West. But he could handle her. He'd seen the movie. All he needed to do was splash some water on her and she'd melt away. He shouted for the scarecrow to grab some water. Yes, Mr. Thorpe, he said, promptly heading to the well. But when the scarecrow tried to grab the bucket, the rope kept slipping from his slippery, straw-covered hands. And each time Mr. Thorpe shouted at him, the bucket fell again. (laughs) Oh, a scarecrow! A high voice said from somewhere above them. It's been a long time since I've seen one in Oz. It was her, gliding down to the clearing on a flying broomstick. Her skin wasn't the bright technicolor green Mr. Thorpe had expected. Instead, it was pale, sickly, jaundiced. Her hair was long and wild, matted and mossy. The Wicked Witch of the West touched down in front of the cowering student. Mr. Thorpe screamed at the scarecrow. What's wrong with you? Soak her! The scarecrow pulled on the rope with all his might and the bucket came up so full, water sloshed over its sides. He stared the witch down with grim determination. Leave us alone, the scarecrow shouted, then tossed the water over her. The witch drew back, sputtering and blinking droplets from her eyes. She was soaked, bedraggled and angry, but she wasn't melting. No, 
Mr. Thorpe thought. Water melts witches. That rule of magic was in the script, in Baum's book even. But apparently, it didn't apply in the real Oz. What do I do now, Mr. Thorpe? The scarecrow said, panic rising. The witch snapped her fingers. Immediately, two monkeys seized the scarecrow's shoulders and carried him up into the air. She said, The last scarecrow didn't have too many brains either, if I recall. Lucky for my monkeys, the little skull you do have is considered a delicacy. A monkey opened its jaws wide. Mr. Thor couldn't watch. He turned away. There was a terrible crunch and then horrible, wet slurping noises. As the monkeys feasted on the scarecrow's brains, Mr. Thorpe urged the others forward. The scarecrow was gone. His only focus now was getting the rest home. Behind them, the cackling witch shouted a warning. I'll see you again soon, Thor. Be sure to watch your step in the woods. <laughs> Mr. Thorpe marched forward, practically dragging his students. By now, the trees were growing thicker. The afternoon had faded into a dull, shadowy twilight. The tin man stopped short, staring at one of the trees. He pointed to a group of knots clustered together like two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Mr. Thorpe reassured him it was fine, just a strange pattern on the bark, nothing more. But as he looked around at the surrounding trees, he noticed something else. They all had identical knots. Of course, the living trees from Balm's book. But what were trees going to do? They had a tin man complete with an axe, so Mr. Thorpe asked him to chop them. But the tin man's response was still flat and emotionless, even as he said he couldn't do it. Like you said, Mr. Thorpe, we're useless. Mr. Thorpe saw this as an opportunity. And you're just going to accept that? Someone calling you useless? He shoved the axe into the Tin Man's hands. Get angry, Tin Man. Use that rage. Do something with it. At the very least, yell. A gnarled tree branch shot out of nowhere. It grabbed the Tin Man's ankle and pulled him upwards, hanging him upside down. The Tin Man screamed. Finally! Mr. Thorpe yelled for the Tin Man to use his rage. The Tin Man swung his axe wildly and hit a branch. The one holding him then fell to the ground. Dozens of branches flailed around the boy, four thick roots wrapped around the Tin Man's wrists and ankles, holding him suspended in the air. He cried out in pain, and the axe dropped from his hands. The lion rushed to his side. For the first time since they'd landed in Oz, he wasn't crying. He seized the axe from the ground and lunged toward the closest tree. Don't hurt my friend, he yelled, every word punctuated by another axe blow. But immediately after, a thick root wrapped around the lion's ankle and pulled him up to join the Tin Man. A chorus of voices echoed through the forest. They were deep and impossibly old and they came from every living tree at the same time.
Brave little lion. Brave and stupid. Such courage needs to be weeded out at the root. A thin vine snaked its way up the lion's pant leg and the boy's hands flung towards his groin. He struggled harder against the branches, pleading with the trees to leave him be. No, no, not my... The vine pulled hard. The lion went limp. Mr. Thorpe winced, the thought of pain shooting in between his legs. The voice spoke again. As for the Tin Man with the heart of a warrior. Sharp branches climbed along the Tin Man's chest. He screamed, but it was useless now. The tree ripped through his costume, his skin, his sternum, and ripped out his heart. Mr. Thorpe sank to his knees. He'd failed them. He'd watched four of his students get destroyed before his eyes and he'd done nothing. He didn't know if the wizard could bring them back to life and send them back home. He didn't even know if there was a wizard in this twisted Oz. Around him, the trees shook with laughter. But there was still one kid left, the munchkin boy. Mr. Thorpe had to keep going, if only for him. He grabbed the munchkin boy's hand and rushed down the yellow brick road. They ran for a while, thankful no more trees came out to attack them. Soon, they burst through to the other side of the wood. There was a large field filled with bright red flowers, and across it, a tall tower glistening green. The wizard's palace. Mr. Thorpe tried to pick up the pace, but walking through the field felt like it took hours. It didn't help that the munchkin boy kept dragging his feet. After the third time Mr. Thorpe caught him sitting down in the flowers, he'd lost it. The boy yawned and told him he was tired. Get off your butt and run, Mr. Thorpe said. The munchkin boy didn't respond. The lazy little turd was sleeping. Mr. Thorpe leaned down to pick the munchkin boy up, but he wouldn't budge. Mr. Thorpe finally noticed the web of roots covering the boy's feet. Before his eyes, a blood-red bud erupted from the greenery. Poppies. Of course, Thorpe had forgotten about the deadly poppies of Oz now taking root in his munchkin boy. Mr. Thorpe ripped the poppies away from the munchkin boy and hoisted him over his shoulder. He wasn't going to lose another one. He ran forward, dodging the plants until he burst free of the field and collapsed, panting. Right in front of the gates to the Emerald City. The wizard's palace actually matched with how Thorpe had envisioned it. Everything was glittering and glass-like. Although, it was suspiciously empty. They'd made their way through the Emerald City to the palace. Now the two of them were in a large room, so cavernous their footsteps echoed. Fires blazed in sconces along the walls, and the room seemed to go on forever. Along the far wall was a giant, brilliant green dais, atop which sat an emerald throne. The wizard's seat might have held Dorothy's interest in the book, but Mr. Thorpe ignored it. Instead, 
His entire focus was on the drab, mossy curtain hanging in a corner. The munchkin boy spoke. Mr. Thorpe, something feels wrong here. But Mr. Thorpe ignored him. He knew the deal. If he wanted to get home, he needed to speak to the real wizard, the man behind the curtain. He grabbed the fabric and pulled it aside. But the face he was looking into was his own. The only thing behind the curtain was a giant, bejeweled mirror. At first, Mr. Thorpe was confused. What did this mean? And where was the wizard? Then his reflection turned and spoke. Didn't you want to meet the man behind the curtain? Mr. Thorpe stumbled backwards as the reflection continued. I've been waiting for you, watching every step of your journey. I seem to remember a few more children were with you when you landed in Oz. Mr. Thorpe tried to explain what happened, how the flying monkeys and trees had attacked him, how the poppies had tricked him. You know what that sounds like? The mirror image asked. A whole lot of excuses. But, but that's not my fault, Mr. Thorpe sputtered. I was just trying to get them to do what they needed to do. It's not my fault they wouldn't listen to me. The mirror man smiled and said, You were their leader, their shepherd, their director. So tell me, whose fault is it really? Mr. Thorpe thought back to the clearing in the woods, how frightened the scarecrow had been. A sound like cracking glass came from the mirror and the figure stepped forward breaking free of its frame. Its features flickered and morphed in the firelight and its skin grew pale and green. The Wicked Witch of the West stood before them. Mr. Thorpe backed away, trembling. She said, You want to go home, right? I'll cut you a deal, a challenge. You win, you and all your kids will wake up safe and happy. But you lose, and you stay here forever. Agree? Mr. Thorpe nodded. He actually felt relieved. Maybe he wasn't the best at pushing his students, but he was great at pushing himself. A challenge he could handle. <laughs> Magnificent! Well, it looks like you're down to just one kid. Let's see if he can give us a show. A great rumbling came from the ground, and then the floor beneath their feet split open. In seconds, Mr. Thorpe and the boy stood at the center of a small island in the middle of the throne room. The floor around them had slid away to reveal a sizzling lake of bright green acid. <laughs> Remember, kid, the theater can be a high-pressure environment. All you have to do is perform your monologue perfectly. Mr. Thorpe turned to the munchkin boy expectantly. 
the boy should be able to do it after his coaching, had to be able to do it. The boy began to tremble. He cried. But Mr. Thorpe said I never get it right. The moment the words left his lips, the ground shook once more and chunks of rock fell from the small island, dissolving in the acid. Perfectly, meaning nothing else but your lines. Mr. Thorpe gulped. Could the boy do it? He never noticed how much the kid trembled all the time. He'd been shaking back on the stage too, hadn't he? This was Thorpe's fault. He terrorized all his students, and it had led to their deaths. The scarecrow. He'd shouted at the kid before forcing him to throw water on the witch. And in the woods, with those terrible trees, it was Thorpe who had woken them, caused them to attack. He goaded the Tin Man into using the axe, which got him and the lion killed. Mr. Thorpe had hurt his other actors by forcing them to do what he wanted. He wouldn't make the same mistake again. Munchkin boy, look at me. Munchkin boy. Jack, look at me. Don't pay attention to her. Jack, you can do this. The thing that will make this perfect is if you try your best. The boy closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and spoke. And so, Dorothy and her friends learned that they had what they needed all along. The Scarecrow learned that experience is the only thing that brings knowledge. As Jack recited the script, Mr. Thorpe felt a rush of pride. He was doing it. He was getting the lines right, every word. He was even acting a little. And Dorothy learned, Jack said, his face beaming. Dorothy learned, learned, learned. Oh no, I don't know it. The throne room shook. Great chunks of stone splashed into the acid below. But Mr. Thorpe didn't care. Jack had finally done his best, and that was good enough. He ran towards the boy and scooped him up in his arms. I'm so proud of you, he said, his skin blistering from the spray. The island shrank smaller and smaller until they sizzled entirely away. Mr. Thorpe woke to a small hand on his face. He was back in the auditorium, and Jack was looking down at him. Mr. Thorpe, are you okay? A voice said. Mr. Thorpe nearly collapsed in relief. It was Dorothy. His Dorothy. And the Tin Man, the Lion, the Scarecrow, his entire cast was standing over them. Not a scratch in sight. They were okay. I'm all right he said, struggling to his feet. His head ached something awful. I think I just bumped my head. I had the strangest dream. Dorothy frowned. Isn't that my line? She said. Suddenly, he remembered what happened. There had been a tornado. It came crashing through the ceiling. 
but when he looked up, he saw that everything was intact. What happened? What about the storm? he asked. The children explained that the tornado had never materialized. Par for the course living in the Midwest, lots of tornado watchers, few than actually touched down. In his panic, Mr. Thorpe had simply slipped and fallen. You know what? he said. Let's take the rest of the night off. And tomorrow, when we come to this theater for opening night, we've got a new goal. We are no longer trying to be perfect. The only thing I want all of you to do is have fun. When the day of the show arrived, the children were as ready as Mr. Thorpe could make them, within reason. He'd learned his lesson and asked that his students do their best. Before curtain, Dorothy decided that she needed an entirely different hairstyle. But Thorpe didn't blow up. He simply allowed her to go on like that. During the Tin Man scene, he was as, ironically, wooden as ever, causing the audience to laugh. But they were parents and teachers, laughing with the student, not at him. The awkwardness of his performance only made the show that much more endearing. The same was true for when the lion started to tear up during his key scene. But there was one performance that wasn't awkward at all. Jack's final monologue. He nailed every word. And this time, it was the audience tearing up. After he was finished, Jack raced off the stage and into the wings. I did it, Mr. Thorpe. I did it, he said. I know you did. I saw the whole thing. I'm so proud of you, Thorpe replied. I couldn't have done it without you, Jack said. Then he wrapped Mr. Thorpe in a hug. Thorpe wasn't going to win a Tony, but middle school theater had its own rewards. The classic film The Wizard of Oz still feels just as magical today as it did in 1939. Though the film and the book that inspired it are of a century past, they still have a powerful grip on our collective imagination. But working on The Wizard of Oz wasn't all rainbows and ruby slippers. The film had difficulties throughout production. It may have had something to do with the four different directors that all handled the project. Or more likely, the oppressive Hollywood studio system. Before unions and labor protections, the studios often treated their actors and crew as expendable. To keep costs as low as possible, they made shooting days dangerously long. They also forced people to work in unhealthy conditions, like wearing dangerous makeup. The original Tin Man, Buddy Ebsen, was hospitalized after having an allergic reaction to his aluminum-based makeup. He was fired from the film and replaced by another actor. And there wasn't even proper safety protocols for the stunts. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, was badly burned when a pyrotechnic effect didn't go as planned. But 16-year-old Judy Garland suffered the worst of it. She was supposed to be playing a young girl, and studio executives decided she looked too womanly for the part. Their solution? To starve 
poor Judy. Even before shooting began, they sent memos back and forth discussing her weight. They even put her on benzodrine, a type of amphetamine. It was supposed to curb her appetite. At the same time, the long shoot days were too much for Judy. Rather than giving her time to rest, studio heads and Garland's own mother put her on an alternating schedule of pills. Uppers to keep her peppy in front of the camera, and downers to get her to sleep. This kick-started Garland's lifelong battle with addiction, which ended in 1969 when she died of an accidental overdose. She was 47. The Wizard of Oz is a classic for a reason. It's breathtakingly beautiful, with iconic characters and some of the best music of the century. But the real curse here has nothing to do with Oz. Instead, it's that even the brightest stars can't always escape the ever-turning cogs of the Hollywood machine. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Superstitions was written by Molly Quinlan with writing assistance by Stacey Nemec, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petras. I'm Alastair Murden. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside... Good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.